Thank you, Russ. You know, I truly do love small children. I'm, I'm blessed to see so many walk back to find their teachers. I, I love playing with them. I love talking to children and kind of entering into their world of wonder and of amazement. I love the simplicity by which children ask questions. I love the, the questions. Sometimes there's a lot of them, but well, why is the sky blue, Daddy? Or why is the grass green? Or how do cars work? And I'm like, I don't know, ask your mom. She knows lots of stuff. Or, or Google it, you know, two-year-old. But if you really think about it, if you stop and really observe the types of questions that small children ask, there's, there's usually an underlying assumption. There's a belief that if you listen carefully, children already have a predisposed mentality where they already intrinsically believe that everything has a reason. Everything has a specific purpose. I mean, just think about it. Whenever a small child sees something they've never seen before, name whatever it might be, whether it's electronic or a device or anything, whenever a child sees something for the first time, what's the first thing they ask? What is that? Daddy, what is that? Right? And then what's the next question that they ask immediately? What do you do with it? What's it for? How do you use it? I mean, this is just the first thought. A child is not agnostic or atheistic that says, well, I doubt that that has any purpose whatsoever. That was the result of time plus chance over evolutionary years. And so I would really suspect that that device has absolutely no purpose or design to it. Children don't think that way. It's learned and educated and supposedly scientific adults that think foolishly like that. That there's a possibility of things existing that has no design or no purpose, no meaning, no reason for it. The reality is that everything that exists has a reason for existing. Everything that exists has specific purpose that was designed by the great Designer, that includes you. You have a purpose. You were designed specifically by God, and you were designed for him. Your purpose, quite simply, is to know God. Your purpose is to, as you know him, to reflect his glory throughout all of your life and to enjoy him forever. If you want to use one word that encapsulates your purpose, it would be worship. That is why you exist. God made you for him. God made you for his pleasure, to enjoy you and for you to enjoy him as you live this life of worshiping him. But not only do you as an individual have a specific purpose and design and a reason for existing, this church, this faith family has a specific reason for existing as well. It's not haphazard. It's not by accident. It's not meaningless. There is a specific reason why God has called this people from different tribes and nations and tongues to gather together in this place to worship the Christ who was resurrected on our behalf. There is a specific reason for that. And this morning, I want us to ponder what is the reason for our church? What is the mission that God has given to us? specifically out of the book of Matthew. If you have your Bibles, please turn there. Matthew 
chapter 9. For those of you that are new to church, Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. And so it's hopefully not too difficult to find. So Matthew chapter 9, verses 35, and we're going to read into chapter 10, verse 4. Read that section. And this is what God's word says, as inspired by his spirit. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called them his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And the names of the twelve apostles were, were these. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is truly a remarkable text. This right here, very brief, but what this does is it tells us specifically why God the Father sent his son to accomplish a specific mission. He came here on purpose. He came here to rescue sinful people like you and me in order to display God's glory. And what you see here, and God the Father is just immeasurable wisdom that he sent his son to redeem, which means to liberate from slavery, to sin. And he sent him, and he used this. But here's what's amazing. God sent the son who then uses us to accomplish his redemptive mission. So the main idea from this text, and the main idea from the text is always the main idea for the sermon. And that is that Jesus' disciples have his authority to continue his redemptive mission. So the mandate from this text is that Jesus' disciples have his authority to continue his redemptive mission. It belongs to Jesus, but he is entrusting us. He is giving us the authority to continue on with his mission. You see, here on, on Friday mornings at the Evangelical Community Church, what we have here is a gathering. We are the church. This, this is a restaurant that's next to a zoo. This is not the church. This is a building. The church are the people that belong to Jesus. So we are the church, and this gathering of the church is here for a reason, and why do we exist? Well, he's assembled us for a specific mission, and this morning I want us to make sure that we clearly understand what it is and how, as a church, we're to accomplish it. So let's go through this passage verse by verse, and better understand what our mission is. In verse 35, it says that Jesus went throughout cities and villages, and it says that he was teaching. He was teaching what? It says that he was proclaiming. So it says that he was going around to villages in the Capernaum area, in Galilee, and that he was teaching, and that he was proclaiming, the two words used here. Jesus was revealing truth. He was teaching. But here's the thing. A lot of times when we think of teaching, we, we get memories to being, I don't know, in school or university. And you picture a boring professor 
who is talking about all this information and just dispensing all these facts that are boring and seem meaningless to your life. Maybe you remember from your math days thinking square roots of positive hold numbers that are not perfect squares are always irrational numbers, which are numbers not expressible as the ratio of two integers. Got that? Remember that? I know, I don't remember that. You're like, what's a square root? I already forgot. You see, Jesus wasn't just dispensing facts. He wasn't just giving information. That's not what he was doing. What he was doing was proclaiming. He was teaching the gospel. He was teaching the good news of God's merciful, of God's incredibly merciful plan to rescue evil sinners just like you and me. You see, what you had with Christ was a passionate plea, not a boring regurgitation of facts. This was a passionate plea, a teaching and a proclamation, it says, of what? Of the gospel of the kingdom. Now, Jesus was proclaiming that he was, is the king, and he had come, and he was calling people to submit to his kingship. This is important to understand. Because when you and I proclaim the gospel, when we tell others about Jesus, you are in fact proclaiming the kingdom of God. And so allegiance to Jesus, allegiance to this king, is believing the gospel. And that's why you have here described the, the gospel of the kingdom. And so the gospel, if you want to distill it to what it is, is the message The gospel is the good news, the message that there is a God in heaven and he is a creator and he is holy. And because God is holy, he cannot be in relationship. He cannot be in the presence of sin. And the gospel also reveals to us that you and I are sinners, that we we have shamed ourselves and that we are guilty and that we even tend to fear God. And so it describes who we are. It describes that we are deserving of God's judgment. But the gospel also reveals that Jesus loves you. The Father loves you. And because he cares for you, and because he created you for his pleasure, and he wants you to enjoy him because of his affections for you, and that's what you are. You are the object of God's affections. You are a treasure to God. And because he loves you, he sent his son to die on the cross as your substitute, as your sacrifice in your place. And on the cross, God poured out his wrath and judgments on Jesus, and Jesus paid it all. And now he offers us forgiveness if we will claim allegiance to his kingdom as evidenced by faith and repentance, turning away from our sin and our complete trust in Christ alone. So Jesus is the king, and he is the king over everything and over everyone. And as the king, he demands that everywhere, everyone would love, trust, and obey only him. So this is important. If you're here and you've been kind of coming for a few weeks, and and you're not really sure what you believe, and maybe you come on occasion, maybe your wife drags you to church, you're like, oh, I don't want to go, but I don't want to look bad. I want to have her happy. And so I'm going with my wife to church, and sometimes it can be all the way around. But whatever your reasons are, I don't pretend to know why you came here this morning. But if you are here this morning, 
and you are not believing in the gospel, you have to understand something. You are in open rebellion to the king. There is a king, and he is the creator. He is the sovereign. And when we say no to God, we are basically saying, I don't want to submit to your kingship, and we're living in rebellion to him. And the king doesn't take lightly to rebels. But that's what we are. We're rebels. And that's why Jesus came to change our hearts, to give us a new heart, new desires, where we desire to submit to the king. And so we need to stop just for a second right now. And I want you to honestly ponder before your God, is Jesus your king? Or are you trying to rule your own life according to your own thoughts or agenda or desires? Have you ever come to that point where you honestly, before your God, all of your heart, said, I am a sinner. I admit that. I can't reach heaven. I'm not good enough. I've sinned. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me on the cross. I repent of that sin, and I turn to you, allegiance to your kingdom. Have you ever truly believed in the gospel? If you have not, then you are not a Christian and you are not saved and you are in a precarious position of rebellion against the king. And what our hearts desire at this church is most, that you would know God and that you would experience his forgiveness, that you experience the joy, the inexpressible joy that comes with knowing Christ. I was talking just this week to a brand new believer in Christ. And let me tell you something, nothing fires me up more. Nothing gives me more joy than spending time with new believers. Listening to this gentleman talk about saying, man, I've been thirsty my whole life, and now for the first time, my soul is satisfied. I've been seeking my whole life, trying different religions, and now for the first time, I've drank water, and my soul is quenched. And I'm on the phone talking to this, this brother, and I'm fighting back tears because of my joy of hearing what God has done in his life. And you can have that same joy if you will turn to Christ. Let's keep reading as we ponder these things. In verse 36, he says, And when he, this is Jesus, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The prince of glory who has come down, become a human being, he sees the crowds. He sees their slavery to sin. He sees how their souls are not satisfied. He sees that they're not forgiven. He sees them trying to make sense of life on their own, and he's moved to compassion. He sees that there are people who don't know his forgiveness, who don't know the peace. They just don't know. And he had compassion. Jesus is merciful. He's a good king. And what he wants most for you is that you will know him and enjoy him. And he sees in this multitude, he sees that they're harassed and helpless, the text says. Literally, the translation there is torn and thrown down. So it's describing sheep that have been abused and are harassed and torn up by the wolves and are torn down, and they've been thrown down, and life has been hard, and they're struggling through life, and they're trying to find a sense of meaning. 
and they're trying to approach you with their own thinking. And Jesus looks, and his heart just breaks for these crowds. And he says they're harassed. They're torn down, and they're thrown down. And he just wants them to know that you exist for his pleasure. He wants you to know him and to enjoy him. And as a shepherd, he sees them as sheep that are scattered with no shepherd. And all he wants to do is care for his sheep and feed them, nourish them, and protect them, keep them away from the wolves. And his sheep who hear his voice come to him. And maybe you're hearing his voice today. Maybe you're hearing, and it's not my voice, it's the voice of the chief shepherd who is calling out to you. Maybe you're hearing his voice today. I would pray that you would run to the shepherd of your soul. He cares for you. He wants to protect you and give you significance and joy. He says that he's a good shepherd who would lay down his life for the sheep. That's my Jesus. That's the master of, of this church. And that's what we live for, is to know Christ and to then make him known. Here's the beauty, is that this good shepherd wants sheep from every tribe and nation and tongue to come to him. But the next verse reveals how that's to happen. And then he says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. You see, Jesus' plan to reach the multitudes is right here in this room. Just look around. His people, his church. He uses his disciples to go forth and make more disciples. And so the mission that Jesus came to redeem, he then entrusts to his disciples. So Jesus' mission belongs to us. And verse 38 says, Therefore pray earnestly of the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers in his harvest. He says, pray. God desires that people would go forth and, and tell the multitudes that are lost and struggling without Jesus that they would, that they would know. And he wants to send laborers into God's harvest. He is sending us to accomplish his mission. And then in verse 1 of the very next chapter, he says, And he called to him his twelve disciples, his followers, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And so here's the king. Here is the king giving his authority to his disciples. He is saying, I'm commissioning you. You are my ambassadors. The king is saying, you represent me. Now go and reach these multitudes. And so we represent God's kingdom as we proclaim the gospel. You see, here's the thing we have to understand, that Jesus is not concerned here that the lost will not come to the Father. His concern here is that the church will not go to the lost. We must pray for laborers. And we must pray that God would give us hearts where we would desire to be laborers. Because God has his people. We see him in this room. And they're more than in this city. But he wants to use us to go and tell them the good news. So he says, go pray for more laborers to accomplish his mission. And so to make things very simple, if you keep reading the book of Matthew, 
this story concludes in the last two verses of Matthew, known as the Great Commission. And Jesus says, all the authority is given unto me on earth as it is in heaven. So he has all authority. All authority is given to Jesus in heaven as it is on earth. He's the king. He has the authority. And then he says, do what? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And I will be with you forever, even to the end of the age. He promises us his presence as we accomplish his mission. Because he has the authority, he's given it to us. And so the mission for our church, if you want to distill it down to one simple phrase, our church's mission is to glorify God by making and developing disciples. That is why we are here. That is what we do as a church. No more, no less. We glorify God by making and developing disciples. Period. That is the command that Jesus gave to us. That's exactly what we are to do and be about as a church. You see, everything that God has done is about displaying his glory. And so this first phrase, glorifying God, that's where it begins. We glorify God. Everything that God does in creation and then saving lost men and women and boys and girls is to display his glory, his magnificent wisdom, and just how amazing he is. And then we have the privilege of witnessing people repent and believe in the gospel and then seeing their lives transformed, seeing them think different and feel different and live different, truly be different. And we can see that transformation and God gets the glory because he's doing it. And so when we talk about glorifying God, we're saying living our lives for him, reflecting his glory. And we do that. We glorify God by making disciples. We tell other people the news, the good news of Jesus. We're intentional to, to proclaim it to those that are around us, neighbors and friends. Make new disciples. And lastly, but also, and developing disciples. Taking the existing disciples, existing believers, and helping them to reach maturity. And so we glorify God by making new disciples and then developing the, our existing disciples. Because quite honestly, people that don't know Jesus aren't glorifying him. But you know what? A messed up Christian isn't glorifying him either. What's more important? They're equally important because they're both about glorifying God. And so we want to be very focused on saying we want to reach new people, make disciples, but let's not neglect existing disciples and being further developed so that both can be glorifying to God as a whole, being gospel-centered. We make and develop disciples that reveals God's glory. And then we're allowed to go and make more disciples. Glorifying God by making and developing disciples. It's simple. It's our joy. It's our life's work. It's our privilege. It's our passion. It's our mission. It's what we're about. And so I want to be practical for a few minutes, okay? Just the last few minutes together. I want to spend just a little bit of time being very practical and talk about, okay, I'm beginning to get a vision out of this text on exactly what our mission is, but how are we going to actually do it? How do we actually accomplish this mission? You might say, well, what is our strategy? There are three keywords that describe this. The first one is growth. So the first point in our strategy is growth. This is how we accomplish the mission. Jesus says that he was teaching, that he was teaching them about his gospel and about the kingdom. And so we're going to teach what is gospel-centered on Friday mornings. And so you're, you're going to hear messages 
that are going to be gospel-centered every single week. And by the way, you have my permission. If you come on a Friday and you don't hear the gospel, you need to call me out. What's wrong, Matthew? Well, weren't you praying this week? Where is the gospel? I came to church and I didn't hear the good news about Jesus. That ought never happen in our church. It needs to be gospel-centered and gospel-saturated every single week because that's how we grow. Disciples are made and developed as we focus on the gospel. And so we need to follow Jesus so you can learn from Jesus so that you can then be like Jesus. We follow him, we become like him, and then we go tell others, how does this happen? How do you grow? I could say a lot. I'll make a very brief, three brief thoughts on growth. Formula for you, very simple. How do you grow? Three elements. You need grace, truth, and time. You need grace, truth, and time. If you have all three elements, you will grow. You need God's grace in your life. Well, how do you experience this grace of God? Quite honestly, you have to spend time with him. You have to connect spiritually with Jesus. How do you do that? You read his word, and you read it slowly. Don't breeze through it fast for headlines. Read it slow. Take time reading his word every day. And then after you've read it and you're feeding your soul, spend time thinking and pondering, meditating, mulling it over, applying it, and then pray. Spend time reading and meditating on God's word and praying. You'll you'll sense his presence and his grace throughout the whole day. But you also need truth. You need to be reading truth and hearing truth from other people. Yes, Friday morning, but throughout the week. And it takes time. Growth is a process. No one grows overnight. Your kids don't grow overnight. It seems like it sometimes, but they're not. It takes years to grow up. Same thing spiritually. So if you have grace in your life as you connect with Jesus, as you're experiencing truth from his word, and over time, I promise you're going to grow. And we want to help you with that. Here at our church, our leadership, I promise your elders and everyone that I know in this church well, we desperately want you to grow. That's what we want. We don't want you to stay the same. We want you to grow and be more like Christ. So the first thing that we must do to accomplish the mission is growth. The second one, the second is influence. So three key words for our strategy. One is growth. Two is influence. We just read in verses 36 through 38 in this text. He described the size of the multitudes. He described the suffering of the multitudes. And he described the separation of these multitudes, how they were far from God with no shepherd to lead them. So you see size and you see suffering and you see separation. Far from God. Don't know forgiveness and peace and joy. Don't know. And it's up to us to influence other people. I like the word influence because it's kind of an umbrella term. Influence is kind of a generic term, but it summarizes a lot. And so it makes it simple to remember. And so influence, quite honestly, very simply, it's intentionally impacting others with the gospel. It's, it's just being intentional to accomplish the mission. So influencing for Jesus, quite simply, is allowing God to use you to transform other people. God's doing it, but you can be the tool. And so what are ways you can influence? Well, you, you, you can do it individually. And so we want you, as an individual, 
to be looking for people in your life, a neighbor, a friend. I was talking to a lady in our church, wonderful. She was in a park, and she met some local. She just met local, just met them in a park, befriended her. She's been in their home. She's been to weddings. She's befriending them. And she'll have a chance to share the gospel at some point. Not, not the first time. But is it not influential to go to their wedding? Is it not influential to be in their home and to build a relationship? Yes, it is. Absolutely. That's still in the category of influence. Befriending someone so they can see Christ in you and at the right time be able to even tell people about the hope that lives in you. And so influence is just quite honestly being intentional to impact others for the gospel. And so there's one key word here for influence, and that is we need to be multiplying. So the word is multiply. And so you multiply as an individual. Well, how do you do that? Well, you find someone maybe at work that doesn't know Jesus, and you befriend that person, and then you share the gospel, and then they'll receive Christ. I promise that's how it works. I didn't invent this. This is what Jesus is saying. Laborers going into his harvest. And so you go and intentionally tell others, and I promise if you tell others and you plant seeds, you will see fruit. If you never tell others, never plant seeds, you will not see fruit. And so the point here is being intentional to multiply. But, so we make disciples that way, but it's not just that. We also develop them. It's both, both gospel-centered. And so with, with developing disciples, it could be as simple as if you're a mature believer, and a lot of you are, you meet with someone else. You meet with another believer that's maybe not as mature as you are. You think, well, really? Well, even if you're on the same part, same spirituality, you can still meet together and disciple someone else, mentor, invest in someone else, and develop disciples. I've seen it. I'm seeing it now in our church. And my passion in our church is to see a, a culture of discipleship take root where I see men discipling other men. And we see women mentoring, discipling other women. And it's not these casual relationships, but it goes maybe even a degree past comfortable because they're asking questions like, what are you reading? How's your prayer life? You're like, oh, oh why are you asking me? Let's, let's talk about sports. No, I want it uncomfortable in this room. We need people in our lives speaking truth to us. We need to be discipling each other intentionally. And so this is influence, both make and develop disciples. But we do it not just as individuals. We also multiply. We influence as a church as a whole. Our plan is to plant a new church one year from right now. Our elders are praying in conjunction with the ECC on-island leadership. And we've just recently, I'm talking this week, formed a church plant leadership team that has members from our church and the ECC on-island leadership team. And we're, we're talking about planting a church in the Musafa or Mohammed bin Zayed region in one year from right now. And so we are going to begin meeting next week. We're going to be prayerfully calling a church planter, someone that you'll get to know who will spend some time in our church, who will preach for us on occasion, and you'll get to know him. And then he's going to be preaching at ECC as well. And they'll get to know him there as well. And then we're going to go plant a church. We're going to go multiply. 
We do it individually. We, we do it as a church. God didn't call me here, nor did he call you here to just be part of one church. It's to multiply. It's to go forth and make more disciples and spread the gospel and spread the church. And so we're going to go plant a church in about a year, and we're all going to be a part of it. Every one of us is a part of this church plant. Well, how? We're going to give towards the church plant. We're going to be praying for the church plant. And maybe God works in your heart, especially if you live in that region. Maybe you can go be part of that core leadership team that goes and plants this new church in the Musafa or MBZ area. So we're going to be praying that God provides a venue on that side of the off-island region. And we want to spread the gospel and his church so that we see more of God's glory displayed. And so how do we accomplish the mission? Well, by growth, spiritual growth, and by influence, by multiplying individually and as a church. Three, community. So it's about growth, influence, and community. Three keywords to define our strategy for how we accomplish the mission. See, Jesus called the 12, not individually, but as a group, to follow him in community. You cannot, listen, you cannot live a healthy Christian life by yourself. It's not possible. You're, you're going against Jesus' design. So how can you do that in this faith family? I'll give you a simple one. I mentioned it earlier, join the home group. Very easy way to connect with people, to have community, to join a home group. And if you're not in one, what you can do in your little slip, maybe turn one in, there's more back there, you can just mark which group or which day you'd like to meet. Turn in that information slip, and I'll give you a call, and I'll help you find a home group so you can have community. It's the best way to have people in your life. Another thing about community might be getting baptized. Again, I mentioned that earlier. Because baptism is the way that you publicly say, I am part of the body of Christ. I'm part of the church. And so baptism is basically identifying with God's people, a picture of the gospel. Uh, another one is becoming a church member. Now, I understand in Abu Dhabi, a very transient place, a lot of people say, no, I don't know about church membership. That's not really required, and it's too difficult. People are coming and going, and I understand that. But the truth is, that the scriptures describe this. You see, what you have, the entire New Testament, there's this thrust where it's describing church membership. You have the apostles that are writing letters to who? Random churches? No, to churches that have specific and identifiable people that are in that church who have committed to that church body. And then you also have in Book of Matthew that we're not going to go through it today, but, but if you look in... In Matthew 18, Jesus describes church leadership, and, and whenever there's conflict, just take it to the church. And so he's describing that there has to be an organized church. And then he concludes the book of Matthew by saying, baptize them to demonstrate that they're part of the local church. And so the point is that there are many more examples, but to be brief, church membership is important and it's biblical because what it does is it shows your commitment to Christ, his purposes, and to his people. I want to read to you a quote from an incredible man who's now with Christ. His name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was an amazing German pastor and theologian. He was living in Germany at the height of Nazism, and he opposed the Nazis and was put in a concentration camp where he would eventually die in a camp with Jews being a German because he believed in the gospel and was against what was happening there. Here's what he says about church specifically. He says, It is by the grace of God 
that a congregation is permitted to gather visibly in this world to share God's word. Not all Christians receive this blessing. The imprisoned, the sick, the scattered lonely, the proclaimers of the gospel in heathen lands stand alone. Therefore, let him who until now has had the privilege of living in common Christian life with other Christians praise God's grace from the bottom of his heart. Let him thank God on his knees and declare it is by grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in community with Christian brethren. Amen. Living in this country, this is heightened. I understand that. Because we're not guaranteed to have this meeting place next week. We're not. And yet, God is good. And he has a plan. And his plan to redeem people for his own name and glory to be made big and manifested is to be done through you and me and this local church. And when you come in as a member, what you're saying is, I'm in. You can trust me. I'm a believer. I'm about the mission. I agree with the strategy. Let's go do this together. So will you commit to this community? Next month, we'll have our first ECC off-island membership class. It's not going to be anything scary. We're going to have a meal. And so we'll be talking about things like what do we believe and what does it mean to be a member and what is our, our covenant and talking about our, our constitution and our church history. Because it makes no sense to us that you would join as a member and not know what we believe or what we're about or where we've been or where we're going. And so we want you to come to this class. And we'll have sign-ups in the next few weeks. I'll, I'll talk about it more. But just not throwing it out there for you. If you're not a member, seriously consider it over the coming weeks. We have a mission that's been given to us by our king. We have his authority to accomplish it. Our mission is simple, to glorify God by making and developing disciples. And our strategy is simple, three words, growth, influence, and community. So are you truly engaged? Is this what you're about, making and developing disciples? My heart is, and I pray that yours is as well. Will you pray with me as we close? Our most gracious loving, holy, and glorious Father. This morning, as we have gathered to worship you, we do so knowing that we don't deserve you. We can never earn favor with you, but we thank you for your mercy. We thank you that you love us and you sent your son to make it possible for us to be forgiven. And then you give us this incredible privilege of being your ambassadors to go and tell others and proclaim your goodness and your beauty in this world, specifically in Abu Dhabi. I pray that we'll be a church that maintains our passion and zeal for you. We know that that flows from experiencing your presence. I pray that you would be manifest in our daily lives as we pursue you, individually and as a church. Father, we pray that you would use us. Please use us. We know that we're imperfect tools, but we so desperately want to be tools in your hand. So we pray that you would see us fit to be used by you. Father, thank you. Thank you for you, for your son and your spirit. And we praise the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.